of the scripture to us now, which is Hebrews 2. And we're going to just continue into the first verse of uh, chapter 3. Sure. So Hebrews 2, starting at verse 1. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. But the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He said, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again he says, Here am I, and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our Apostle and High Priest. Okay. <laughs> Can you give us just a quick summary of the passage, just a little overview of what we've just heard, for those of us who tune out in the readings <laughs> and need to read those. Give us, give us it in, yeah. in a few sentences. Uh, well, basically, it's talking about, um, it's giving us a warning, but the warning is really interesting because it's a warning about um, salvation, but it's kind of a different salvation to what we sometimes understood, and the language that's used is really interesting. So it's, um, 
it's getting us avoided about salvation, but it's not focusing on what we're saved from, for the most part. It does mention it towards the end. But it's actually the focus of the passage is what we're saved to and what we're saved for. So you'll notice language about, um, like in verse 9, um, sorry, in verse 10, it says, uh, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that, that, that God, and that's how it's explained salvation, bringing us to glory. Uh, and I don't know about you, but for a lot of my life, salvation was, was described as escape from hell. Like, that's what salvation is. It's escape from um, sin and death. But in this passage, it's actually kind of warning us not to uh, ignore what we're being saved to and what God is asking us to live into. And it uses uh, a really cool metaphor at the beginning that it's going to come back to a bunch of times in Hebrew um, about a metaphor of a ship kind of being an anchor. Um, but just another thing about Hebrew, and I, don't, I can't remember if you mentioned it last week, you probably did, Joel, but... You know, some of, some of the books that we have in the New Testament are like really, um, I almost want to call them Bogan Greek. <laughs> it's like, like the book of Mark is like, oh, you know, it's like hearing a story from my 10-year-old nephew. It's like, and immediately this happened and this happened and then my friend was there and then this happened and then this happened. And the whole book is like, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately. But then um, Hebrews 2 is like sitting down and hearing an amazing oration. Like in the first sentence, there's this incredible alliteration that happens, and you don't get that in a lot of the other books, so it's kind of this highfalutin argument um, that's quite a complex argument, but there's repeated metaphors and things that's going to keep coming back to. So how does that change the way that we come to read Hebrew as opposed to a book like Mark, which you say is like high-intensity storytelling? This is different. Well, how does that change the the, you know, what we can hear from Hebrew? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, Mark is very much, or something like that, is very much introducing you into a narrative and telling a story, whereas Hebrews is very intentionally making an argument. It's, I, maybe in some ways it's a bit more like an essay, mm -hmm. um, where it's talking to a bunch of people um, who have um, been Christians for a little while now, potentially, probably written... Um, the second half of the first century. Um, we're not sure exactly when, but um, it's not that immediately first kind of first generation of Christians. Um, and you kind of get the sense that uh, a lot of the people that have become Christians by this time, or quite a few of them, are Gentile Christians that have been kind of brought back into, um, or brought into the family of God or the people of God in that kind of sense. And part of what seems to be happening uh, is that some of the Gentiles, sorry, so some of the Jewish Christians are saying, you know, the most awesome thing about Judaism, the most awesome thing about faith in Yahweh is the law, because the law shows us who God is, and the law is amazing, and the law is awesome. Uh, and part of what's happening in the book of Hebrews is um, that the author is saying, yeah, the law is awesome, and that was an awesome message, and it's really great, but Jesus is doing something kind of extra, and he's fulfilled the law and now he's pulling us into that salvation and towards the restoration that's to come um, and that's part of where you get that metaphor of a ship so right at the beginning of Hebrews uh, of Hebrews 2 um, it says we've got to pay the most careful attention to what we've heard so it's like really lean in be very very careful um, 
and then it says, um, so the most careful attention. And that word for attention is a word that's used for anchoring a ship at port. Um, and I don't know if you've ever been on a ship. It happened to me once years ago when I was scuba diving on the Great Barrier Reef. And um, it, was, it was like a dive cruise. It was a few, few days and a few nights. And this one night, there was all of a sudden this kerfuffle in the middle of the night as the crew realised that the ship was drifting. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. when they'd anchored the night before, they'd thrown the anchor overboard, right? But they'd actually dropped it on top of a coral bombing, like a big, which is not a good thing to do on the reef. Mm-hmm. Um, and it hadn't drifted onto anything. It hadn't drifted. So in the middle of the night, we're like drifting away and could have um, landed anywhere. What they actually ended up having to do is um, send down divers to grab the anchor and to actually take it to the very bottom and plant it in the ocean floor just because of the situation that was happening. At night time. At night time. Literally. Planting. But it's this most amazing thing because in Hebrews uh, 6.19, it's going to come back and say... Um, we have this hope, and it's talking about salvation. We have, and the promises of God that what's to come. It says we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And we'll talk about Jesus being this high priest that's gone before us into the presence of God, the most holy place of the temple is kind of the image, and anchored our lives in the very presence of God. And whenever I read that and think about it, I think about that night on the boat and how the divers had to go down and get that anchor and anchor it firmly and securely so it would not move again. And I think, that's my life. It's anchored in the throne room of God by Jesus. He's the one who's done the dive and anchored my life like that. And um, so what's happening in this passage is the author is giving a warning, dude, Remember, your life needs to be anchored in Jesus. So, you know, drift away from the central things to other things that are, that are interesting and important and good to talk about, but you need to be really well anchored. Uh, and that's why it says at the end of that verse, you know, you need to be anchored. You need to pay careful attention so that we don't drift away. And it's that image of just slowly floating off because you're not anchored firmly in Jesus. There's a bit of... Um in the, in the passage, like um, quoting of the Old Testament scriptures um, and, um, and referring to Abraham's descendants and things like that. So, like, what, what, how is scripture being used to kind of make that point about that warning, or, or what themes are you drawing on in terms of the Old Testament? Yeah, okay. Um, so, very much the whole argument is about. Israel's story and it's taking the scriptures and showing how all that points to Jesus um, but what is happening here and also in what um, Joel was talking about last week is that the author is particularly using psalms that were understood to talk about the Messiah the one to come um, and applying them very specifically to Jesus uh, it quotes Psalm 8 which we sometimes talk about like as a kingship psalm or an enthronement psalm to talk about this king is to come and it applies that to Jesus. Uh, it quotes Psalm 22, which is one of the most quoted Psalms in the New Testament. It's extensive stuff about that when Jesus is on the cross. It's all Psalm 22 stuff uh, in the Synoptic Gospels. And then Isaiah 8 as well. But here's a few. I find this really interesting. And um, I don't know how you feel about this or if someone's told you this before. But 
the New Testament writers use the Old Testament in really interesting ways. Because what they actually do, like if you get really careful and you take these verses and you go and flip to the Old Testament verses that are being used, you're going to discover that the authors edited them. And sometimes they change words and they twist things around in order to make the point that they want to make. So, for example, here, um, it starts with Psalm 8, what's mankind that you're, that you're mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him. That's not what Psalm 8 says. Psalm 8 keeps it broad and general. But this author is wanting to make really clear to us that Jesus is the fulfillment of this. So it actually changes the grammar and the structure to make that point. And then it skips the bits that aren't central to the argument, like it skips a bit between you crown them with glory and honour and put everything under your feet. Uh, it skips a little bit there. And I mean, you can see again where it quotes Isaiah 18. It's just taking little snippets from the verses. Now, sometimes when New Testament writers do that, they quote just a little bit of a snippet to make you think about the whole passage. But here's what's really interesting in this one, I think. Psalm 22... All the verses up to this one, so in verse 12, he says, um, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly, I will sing your praises. He quotes Psalm 22, verse 22. So what's really interesting is, Psalm 22, up to this point, is really dark. <laughs> it's all the crucifixion stuff. It's all, everything is terrible and horrible, and it's describing, you know, quite full-on detail, um, what we then see kind of playing out with Jesus' crucifixion on the cross. But Psalm 22, yeah, verse 22 is like this hinge point where it turns to what's been achieved. And that's really interesting for this passage because what it's trying to make us do is go, yes, you've been saved, that has happened, you've been delivered from that, but you need to pivot to what your salvation is for and what it looks like to live into that. But the challenge is, for, for me, I think, that so often we've read this passage in particular, and a couple of others in, in Hebrews and places as well, as like a dire warning with this overlay of fear. Um, I think sometimes in the uh, NIV, like one of the headings is a warning against drifting away. But it's got this heaviness and this foreboding fear of hell. But the, uh, the threat, if you want to put it that way, which you kind of shouldn't in light of the passage, but kind of the thing that we're being warned against in this passage is to just accept um, like a very uh, simple level of what salvation is, like, oh, okay, so I don't have to be afraid of death anymore, to just accept that without learning to live. Does that make any sense? Can I tell you a quick story? Hmm. Does anyone have any questions at this point? You might ask a bit. <laughs> so when I was 13 years old, um, I was not in a good way at all. Um, my family had moved around heaps when I was growing up. My parents were Salvation Army officers and my family had moved around a heck of a lot when I was growing up. And, um, you know, by that time we'd already lived in um, Chester Hills and then in Rockhampton in Queensland and then in Canberra in three different houses over the space of two years. Um, and then Bankstown, two houses over two years. And then to New Zealand for four and a half years in two different houses over a couple of different schools. Um, and then when I was 12, we'd moved back to Australia. Um, we moved, we'd lived in St Mary's for six months and then we moved to um, Regent's Park uh, at the beginning of the year when I turned 13. And that year, I was, I was a mess, to be honest. I, I wasn't diagnosed with depression probably till my 
late 20s, early 30s. Um, but looking back, I had severe depression at that point in my life, um, which my mum could obviously see because she made the very wise decision to ban me from watching Home and Away because that was clearly having a bad effect on my life. So <laughs> solved all the problems, we're good. Um, no, I wasn't going well. And a lot of that was around my sexuality and relationships and things that were deeply buried that I couldn't even own to myself, let alone anything else. So um, around about this time of the year, maybe a little bit earlier, saw me um, sitting on a windowsill of a building about to jump out and kill myself. Because um, I just felt complete hopelessness um, and that nothing was going to get any better. And I felt like a dangerous person and there's this thing inside of me that was so terrible. And so I'm sitting on this windowsill and right like, down below me on the ground, it was all grass. Um, and um, I remember sitting on this um, windowsill and thinking one crazy thing, well there's kind of two crazy things in one way. The first thing that made me pause was going, oh, there's grass in there, down there. I wonder if there's bindies. I really hate bindies. <laughs> Gee, it sucks if I land and got bindies. I don't think that was probably the biggest thing to worry about when I hit the ground at that point. Um, but that gave me pause for a second. And then I started thinking, what's going to happen once I die? Like, so I jump and I die, hopefully. What's going to happen then? And I started thinking about going to hell because that was my whole upbringing, right, evangelical Christian, I die as a sinner, I'm going to hell. And I was sitting there, I remember sitting there thinking, hell, like I think what I'm going through now is pretty bad, hell can only be worse. Um, and just thinking about that and the fear of that and the terror of that made me climb out of that window and not kill myself that day. Um, and it was later on that year that I yeah, kind of had the first of a series of encounters with Jesus that brought me from knowledge about Jesus to knowing who Jesus was. So on that day, the fear of going to hell stopped me from committing suicide. But here's the thing. It never taught me to live. Like it stopped me killing myself at that point in time, but it never taught me to live with hope. And over time, for the next like 25 years, like I I grew in my relationship with Jesus and there was great things happening and, and lots of good stuff and lots of good fruit and things like that. But I never really understood fully what I was saved to and the fact that my salvation wasn't just an escape from a fiery torment but an introduction to life and to hope and to meaning and to fullness. Um, and that's what I see in this passage that the writer is going, guys, like you are, you are saved to glory. You are saved to this fierceness of relationship. You're saved to be the ones who are crowned with glory and honour. Like literally in the psalm where, uh, that it's talking about, it says that you, you have that dominion. You're responsible for care of creation and living in the character of God. Like you're saved to all of that. It's not just an escape from the bad stuff. It's living into all this fullness and this awesomeness. And that's what I didn't get then. And that's what this passage is doing that I love so much. Mm. I don't know if that answers your question, probably not. Mm -hmm. Like just about, not focus on what you're saved from, but what you're being saved to. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. What do people think about that? That's probably a different, like, you know, you wouldn't say, you know, 
come and be saved or something, but that, that's usually a receive from kind of word. Kind of complex. Any thoughts on that? And you use the word saved. Mm. Yeah, Why is like a, ooh, like a just, yeah, yeah. you away from something that was dangerous. Yeah, close um, call. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so what Hebrews is saying, ironically, 
um, in terms of how we sometimes received it is if you are at a point of fear of the consequences or fear that God might stop loving you or fear of death or hell or whatever the case might be, that's when you've drifted away. Because if you were firmly anchored in Christ, you would have the freedom of knowing my life is anchored in the throne room of God and I am completely loved and my salvation is, is assured and it starts now. It starts now. Um, we sometimes talk about um, salvation in three kind of ways. Um, we talk about how um, I was saved. So I was, when Jesus, you know, when I accepted Jesus into my life or understood him to be my, my Lord and Savior, whatever language you want to put around that, I was saved. I was set free from the slavery to fear and death. I was set free from the, the threat of hell. I was set free from all that threatening, fearful stuff that was held over me. So I was safe from that. That's not me anymore. But then we sometimes say, um, and I am being saved. In other words, I, now I'm learning to live in that. Yeah? Um, the author of Hebrews in um, chapter 10, verse 14, it, they're going to put it this way. They're going to say, um, by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And it's that holiness, not in terms of learning to keep the rules, but learning what it is to live in the nature of God and to demonstrate God's character um, and to live in right relationship and care for the earth and all those kind of things. It's that set-apart holiness, which is a modelling of all the good things. Um, so we have been saved, we are being saved, and then the third one is, and I will be saved. Because we all get that right now things are not yet what they will be. Um, and there's a pointing forward towards that as well. That we will be finally and fully, ultimately saved um, when Jesus comes to restore things. So, hmm. so do you kind of define salvation from this passage? You're saying it's, it's being set free from some of that, that fear. Hmm. And um, just, yeah, you're saying and stepping into freedom? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, I think I want to answer that by going back to question, like to um, verses 2 and 3 for a minute. Okay, so um, it says, so talking about the, the, I guess, the old covenant or the, what we would call the Old Testament, however you want to put it, the awkward language, but. For since the message is spoken through angels, and it's talking about the giving of the law and stuff like that, um, since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every um, violation and disobedience received its just punishment. Now, I just want to stop there for a second, because that sounds like really threatening language, right? <laughs> so I just want to stop and ask you the question, in the Old Testament, what was the consequence to disobedience to the law? What was the consequence? Wandering around in the desert for 40 years. <laughs> yeah, wandering in the desert for 40 years. That was a big consequence when they failed to really trust God in that moment. And they would found themselves wandering um, and messing around with idols and just making a mess of things, right? Um, what about once they're settled in, in the kingdom and they still can't get it right and they're still screwing up? What happens then? God would leave them to their own devices and other 
other nations would come in and, and take over them. Yep. So mm. obviously cry out to God and be like, yeah. Yes. So there's like almost international strife, a strife between nations. There was um, political upheaval. Yeah, would that be right? Yes, it's funny plagues, that's right. Like nature disturbed. Um, if you think about something like the book of Amos, um, where it talks about one of the ways in which they were breaking the law and messing up so badly was that society had become really unequal and there was a huge gap between rich and poor. So some people were like really rich and luxurious and you know living the life and other people were like struggling to make ends meet and to find bread to eat and, and all that kind of stuff. There's a massive gap. Um, and when that happens, there's consequences. Now, um, the consequence for the people was actually really tangible. <laughs> all the things you said, they're tangible. It wasn't a threat of eternal separation from God. I hope it doesn't sound like I'm saying heresy, but just look at what happens in the Old Testament. What happens is very real ramifications for society. Political upheaval, natural upheaval, um, socioeconomic upheaval that causes huge pain and sometimes um, separation from their homeland, in, as in the exile and, and all those kind of things. Like, there's huge stuff that happens. And now, this is something that I've been thinking about this week. So, um, every uh, violation and disobedience receives its just punishment. And most of those, like sometimes we think about the death penalty in the Old Testament and stuff like that, and yeah, sure, there's instances of death penalty. But most of how we see this play out is just strife in society. Is, is that fair? Yeah. Okay, so then the writer says, I'm talking about Jesus, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Talking about the salvation of Jesus, and I'm like, well, what's the threat there? Like, is it that, you know, given what he's just said, or, or the author has just said about um, the punishments in the Old Testament and all that kind of thing, I think sometimes we automatically go to the death penalty, but actually the main, the main punishments, the big ticket punishments in the Old Testament are the wilderness wandering and the exile. They are the two biggest ticket punishments, yeah? Um, so what about the New Testament? What's going to happen if we ignore so great a salvation? And I was thinking about that and I'm thinking, see, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew people did have an understanding of salvation as applying in a very particular way to them as a people. And one of the scandalous things about the New Testament is that it throws it open to everyone, yeah? And we see hints of that in the Old Testament. But now, like in the language of John, for example, salvation is on a cosmic scale. Like it's open to everyone. And there's hints of um, restoration of everything that was broken in the fall. So, for example, some theologians will look at, um, you know, uh, Acts 2 when you've got the day of Pentecost and speaking in tongues and stuff like that. A lot of theologians actually see that as a throwback to Genesis 11, Genesis 11 where you've got the Tower of Babel, where humanity is split because of all the languages caused division between the people. Um, and Acts uh, on the day of Pentecost is kind of a sign that God is bringing things back together and bringing people together. So salvation is potentially on this cosmic international scale, which seems to be hinted at, and certainly it, you know, 
Um, Jesus has come that none should perish and all that kind of stuff in terms of everyone is welcome regardless of your ethnicity or whatever the case might be. What are the consequences if we ignore that? What are the consequences if we don't live into that salvation? And then I've started thinking about like our world today and the fragmentation of our world. Um, and that when stuff goes wrong today, it's not just in a little region of the world as a problem between some tribes. It's like things can go wrong on a global scale. Um, and I'm just, I know that's uh, probably for a lot of your new way of thinking about this, or, and some of you, you might not like it, and that's okay, you can push back against it. But I'm just thinking about the, the reality that we are called as Christ ambassadors to point forward to his kingdom, to point forward to the restoration that is to come. And if we ignore that, if we ignore what we are to live into, what are the consequences? Because it's going to be social strife and it's going to be broken relationships and it's going to be all of these things, but maybe even on a bigger scale than when it was almost quite a localised thing. Now, I think salvation is that and more, um, but I think that's part of what's happening here because then what the writer talks about is some, um, you know, Jesus announcing, announcing the gospel and confirming it by signs and wonders. Like when the gospel happened, stuff happened. When the gospel is declared in the New Testament, stuff happens in people's lives. And I actually think that we've lost that today in our society and in the church today. We are too often at a point where for us the declaration is enough. But in the New Testament, the declaration comes with signs and wonders. It always does. When the gospel is preached, there are consequences where you begin to see the kingdom breaking in, the deliverance of God breaking in. And it might be someone being raised from the dead, or it might be people gathering together in, in community that would never have even spoken to each other before. Or it might be whatever the case might be, but the gospel comes and stuff happens that points to an ultimate restoration that's on its way. And uh, I wonder how it might change our understanding if we thought about it that way. Because certainly the writer of Hebrews, when he talks about our salvation, he doesn't go, wow, you escaped by the skin of your teeth there, didn't he? He says, you've been brought to glory. And glory, again, in the Old Testament, that's a word for the very presence of God. So I think there's another way of understanding salvation that A, is not fear-based. There's not a constant threat hanging over you because that's actually already been accomplished by Jesus. But secondly, is calling us forward into something glorious and beautiful and wonderful. And it's saying you need, to, you need to always remember that. You need to be centered on that and anchored to that so that you're living out your salvation in a way that has that impact. Because if you're still living in fear of death or slavery to fear, you haven't understood your salvation yet. And your anchor is not actually set. Does that... How's this interview going? It's really stopping me from preaching, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's keeping us coming. It's two past seven. Ooh, so before we finish, um, any comments? Any Does that freak you out that I framed it that way? Salvation is all the time. Salvation right? is everywhere. That's it. And it's, 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 
now that you're going to say it, I'm like, oh, it's so obvious. It's supposed to be about today. It's yeah. not supposed to be about just yeah. when I die. It's like yeah. just here now. It's this church. It's this community. Yeah. yeah. But do you think of some of those big debates that you know of, right, around mm. Hebrews and Jews and these bits where it's like, it's all about backsliding. Look at you did it wrong. You're going to backslide and you're going to lose your salvation and maybe you were never one of the elect. That's not, it's not talking about that at all. Salvation here is into the life of God, living in the glory of God, participating in the reign of God. That's what Psalm 8 is about, sharing the reign of God, living in a way that points to God's character and cares for the earth. That's an awesome point there. It's really freeing, isn't it? It should be quite freeing. I used to say, a lot of those people that bring out that argument, they don't worry that they've got it wrong. Sometimes, you know, you hear that and think, well, what if you've got it wrong? Yeah. Are you worried you've got it wrong? And they're never worried that they've got it wrong. <laughs> so, I don't know. Yeah. Um, it's that box thinking again. Yeah. I remember when we did that? When we talked about box understanding of Christianity, where you're either in or out. Um, and there's that step, like in that understanding, there's a fear of being outside the box. Because you're in the box, you're all good. You, you mm. do. It's, it's mm. never them that's understanding yeah. the box. Even if it's hurting and damaging people, yeah. um, mm-hmm. like you know, with slavery, for instance, you'd never, yeah. you'd never say now, um, "Yeah, I've got it right." And that's, that, that's I'm right. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd be taught that way. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's just an interesting example because I mean, a lot of you that have looked into it will know that. Um, I don't know. Probably, I'm assuming some very shady people with a lot of money, but um, that. There was when there was an attempt to abolish slavery under Wilberforce in um, England and around the Civil War in America. There are a lot of Christians that went, "You can't do that. That's a slippery slope. If you get rid of slavery, which is you know in the Bible as a good thing, what else are you going to get rid of? What else are you going to go down the slippery slope?" And, and Jesus was aware of slavery, but he never spoke about it. And Paul, you know, he, he speaks about it like it's actually. Exactly the same process and argumentation that we see today about LGBT people. And so I think to myself, okay, so this argument that you're giving me about why I'm an evil person that can never see the face of God is exactly the same argumentation that was used to justify slavery. I do not accept your argumentation. Let's try again. Because you're using the same process to say that some human people are not fully human and don't deserve basic human rights. Oh, actually, you're doing the same thing again, aren't you? It's exactly the same process of argumentation. Mm. Well, except now, though, Christians credit themselves with abolishing slavery. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And often the same denominations and groups of people that were all for it at the time. Mm. Mm. Things change over time. So this, I think it's in that same process of fear. Like again, if you think like late 20th century, um, huge conversation in the church around divorce um, and whether someone who is divorced could be admitted into the church. Um, and But it was all fear-based. It's always about fear and hell and all the threats and everything like that. Um, women voting. Women voting, women preaching. Um, whatever the case might be, it's always about fear. And what wins the day ultimately for every one of those arguments is looking at the fruit. It's actually looking at 
But since this person who has been divorced seems exhibiting all the fruit of the Holy Spirit and perhaps in this sense, and if God's Spirit is working through them, then who are we to say that's evil? Here is this woman preaching the gospel powerfully, speaking to people, and we're seeing people encounter Jesus. Who are we to call that evil? Here is this person of colour who is, it sounds horrible to say it, but I don't know, this person of colour who is clearly highly intelligent and has a robust relationship with Jesus and demonstrates the full character of God and commitment standing, all of these kind of things. How can I call that evil? It's the fruit kind of argument every time. Mm. I think that's probably going to be the same for us. It was certainly the case for us, right? If you allude to part of us having courage to come out was actually seeing people that were saying such attractive in relationships and going, but I see their relationship with Jesus and it's beautiful, I can't call that evil. And finally, I thought, well, maybe I'm not evil either. You know, I, I wanted um, Peter to read verse three, uh, uh, sorry, chapter three, verse one as well, and not just finish at the end of chapter two, because you know, again, when these this was first written, there were chapters and verses and all that kind of thing. We've made kind of arbitrary divisions in some places. Um, do you know that some it's people? The council. The council. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you know how some New Testament theologians and scholars will say. The guy that, because it was one bloke, right, that went through and did the chapter divisions and the verses, and it gets more and more bizarre as he goes on. And I've heard New Testament professors go, we think that maybe he was drunk. And he just, he was drinking and going, oh, yeah, shabash. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway um, but in verse 3 it says, therefore, so in light of everything that we've said, therefore, Holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. Remember, this is about salvation, and salvation is to something. It's to community as brothers and sisters in Christ, um, and it's to a heavenly calling to live in the image of Jesus. It says, um, Fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. That's, there's heaps more that we can say, but. I just keep coming back to that image of Jesus at the centre and we're moving towards Jesus and helping each other to move towards Jesus and to be anchored in Jesus. And that's what I would want to say. If our eyes are fixed in Jesus, um, if we are anchored in the life of Jesus, then we understand that we start love. We are not on a journey towards acceptance. We are not on a journey to become loved, to belong that is our starting place. That is what we are anchored to. And the experience of our life is living into the fullness of that. Like getting to experience that belonging and that love and that peace of God 
and then living in such a way and in relationship with one another in such a way that other people are drawn toward Jesus and drawn into that. That, that is our salvation, guys, that we get to live having started right, knowing that we belong, knowing that we're treasured and holy, and then drawing people into that. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus and let us live together in such a way that we're constantly reminding each other of that so that other people want to be drawn towards Jesus and drawn into that community. That's, that's what I'd want to say. Why don't we share in communion now as we think about that and maybe commit ourselves to fixing our eyes on Jesus again and, um, and, and living into that salvation and take a moment to, to acknowledge Jesus our, as our apostle and our high priest and thank him for that and to commit ourselves to that heavenly calling of, of following Jesus and fixing our eyes on him. Nathan's going to play, uh, play as we do that. Um, God.